In a time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome everyone to episode 36 of the Feelin' Film podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and with my normal co-host, Patrick, still in Kenya doing superhero work for good, I'm joined today by friend and fellow podcaster, Blaine Grimes of Real World Rewind. This episode gives us a chance to examine one of Pixar's best films, and we expect that it'll be one of our most incredible ones yet. It also might be full of puns, because puns are super fun. Well, Blaine, thanks so much for coming on. I've really been looking forward to this. Uh, How you been doing, man? I am doing well. I'm really excited to get to talk with you about this film. And we've had this sort of in the works for a while now. It's been several months. And you told me that I could pick the movie. And it actually took me a while to pick it. I was kind of going back and forth. It's like, ah, do I want to do this? Do I want to do that? Tossing around all these things in my mind. It's it's kind of like when you've got so many options, it's it's hard to land on something. And then finally, I had this moment of clarity. And I'm like, of course, of course, I know what I want to talk about. Uh, I want to talk about The Incredibles. Well, it was a, an incredible choice, I, I, I got to say. And I, I fear that I'm going to do this the whole episode. Uh, yes. But, uh, <laughs> but really, I, I was pumped when you picked this movie. And it's funny that you mentioned how long this has been in the works, because unlike some podcasters that I, I know and I'm friends with um, who are are very – very much shorter time frame uh, for when they pick their episodes. Uh, Patrick and I generally have our schedule planned out, you know, almost half a year in advance. So I can tell you every week what we're doing from now until May at this point in time. And so we're, um, we're both kind of organized freaks. And so we do things uh, well in advance. And I remember when I first reached out to you and you're like, dude, I don't know what I'm doing in three months on that day. <laughs> I don't know what the heck could happen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I'm glad it worked out. I think um, the interesting one of the interesting things was we had originally talked about doing La La Land together, and right. it was not going to work because of the week that I was going to do the episode and you were busy doing uh, wrapping up school grading papers. Um, and then it ends up getting its release date pushed, and now we are going to be able to do it as a mini-sode. So yes. that's pretty exciting, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So listeners, you're going to hear Blaine today, and you're going to hear Blaine about a week from now again. Uh, talking with me about La La Land, which we're both just through the roof excited about. Yeah. But for now, what our normal plan is, is we just talk a little bit about what we've been up to. And since I don't talk to you as much as I talk to Patrick during a week, this should be pretty interesting. What have you been doing? I'm I'm guessing that it's probably something Star Wars related because I know you're a super fan and there might be a new Star Wars movie coming out here in a few days. Maybe, maybe there might be a new Star Wars movie coming out. And I might be thinking about it a lot. Um, and I, this might be the longest week of my life just waiting uh, waiting for Thursday night, waiting to go see this movie, and then waiting to go see it again and again and again. So yeah, the Star Wars hype has picked up, and I'm all about that. So that's been, that's been really exciting. Um, I... Haven't been watching as many new releases because I've been having a lot of work stuff that's been keeping me from that, which is sad. Um, so I got a chance the other day to rewatch 10 Cloverfield Lane. Uh, that was my second time seeing the film. And so that was really great to get to revisit it. Reminded me of how much I love that movie. 
and how great it is. And then uh, I've been watching a lot of Star Wars Rebels to bring it back to Star Wars. There we go. Um, because I write weekly reviews or bi-weekly reviews of the uh, TV series with uh, my friend uh, Josh Crabb. So been watching a lot of Star Wars Rebels. Where where do you write those? Yeah, I write those on realworldtheology.com. Great. That's where you can find all of that stuff. Josh is actually going to be joining me later this week for a mini-sode uh, on Moonlight. So, Oh, cool. Yeah, so that name drop you guys just heard wasn't even planned, but it works in perfectly <laughs> for the show. Um, so I have not actually watched much Rebels. I watched a few episodes with my kids here and there. Uh, they're not, they don't watch it you know, regularly or anything. Is this, this is the one where there's a Sith and he has the awesome, like, uh, cylindrical centerpiece to a, a lightsaber with two ends on it. I don't know what the heck I would call this. Oh yeah. The inquisitor, the inquisitor, the inquisitor with the lightsaber that spins. Yes. There are actually multiple inquisitors who have those, uh, spinning blade lightsabers. Yeah. That's that's the show. Those guys are a lot of fun. So and it, girls. Oh, there's both. So is it is it pretty? I, I get, I'm guessing as if you're doing you know re, if you're doing episodic recaps of it, that it's got enough content that appeals to adults as well as kids. Yeah, definitely. So especially for people who are older fans of Star Wars and fans of the old expanded universe, um, they've done a great job with Rebels. Uh, basically recanonizing a lot of the old EU stuff, material. I could talk about that forever and have at great length. Um, but that's one of the appeals that Star Wars Rebels has for, for older fans as well. Interesting. I might have to try and check some of that out then because I, I do like those stories, and I remember liking the uh, the cartoon, I guess, if I want to call it that. That's what yeah. it is. Um, version of it when I have seen it. Is it anywhere streaming yet for older seasons or – it's not. No, it's not anywhere streaming. It's Disney, uh, right? Well, yeah, it's Disney. So usually yeah. through like the Disney app or Disney. you buy the seasons. Okay. Do you and did you like Cloverfield Lane? I'm assuming you must have if you watched it twice. Yeah, I really did. I Good. really did. Um enjoyed it even more the second time around. Good. Your credit uh, your credibility great. doesn't go away, so Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like this very Hitchcockian film that is just like rat, ratchets up the tension and I love like posing these questions of um, which kind of monster that you're going to face, which kind of monster that you might face is, is scarier. Um, so it's just a very cool movie. And then of course, like the whole ad campaign around when it dropped oh. is something I don't think I'll ever forget because it was such a short time frame. Mm-hmm. this movie coming out of nowhere and us getting excited about it. And then it actually delivering on, on what it promised. Yeah. I remember it very vividly. It was during the Super Bowl that the first actual ad hit. And I just remember going like, what? Cause I was, I was way more interested in, I mean, I love football, but it just was not my team. And so I was way more interested in that Cloverfield teaser than I was the Super Bowl. Once that dropped, I was like completely checked out and I was all about yeah. like, what's going to be in this movie? Well, that's great. Um, well, for me, I got around to a couple things. One, I have, I don't know if you're watching Westworld. Are you a HBO show kind of guy or I'm not, I don't have, have the time. HBO. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, Westworld's an interesting show. We did some episodes on it in the beginning of its run and just weren't able to keep it up from a production time point or time uh, cost uh, to us. But uh, I love talking about it. It's just such a great sci-fi piece that gives you plenty to discuss and, and lots of questions. It's it's very Lost-like, uh, people would call it, which makes sense, uh, being – Produced by Abrams and having Jonathan Nolan at the helm as a writer, 
but it is it just wrapped itself up in this past week and i kind of had to binge watch episodes eight nine and then the finale ten um and it was it was awesome oh man it it is such a great show that it's it's a it's one where you finish those ten episodes and you immediately want to go back and rewatch it because yeah. all of those answers that you've now gotten those character arcs that you've I wouldn't say seen completed in all aspects, but you've seen them progress to this new level. And so you want to go back and say, and see if you can catch all of those cues throughout the show. Um, And, and for me, that's just such a sign of a very, just a well-written piece of art uh, when it makes you want to do that. So I had a blast with it and it is, gosh, it's such a great piece of work and it's, um, it's got so much, so many options for where it can go from here. I know Michael Crichton's original material has other locations and theme parks. They have like a, a medieval world and all these other places. They're not just Westworld. And they kind of tease that a little bit in the finale. And so I got all excited thinking, oh, um, we're going to get to see some of it. So that was, that was one of the best parts of my week was just finally getting to catch up with that. And, you know, it's one of the first shows I've watched in real time successively mm-hmm. in years, but it was good enough that it captured my attention. Um, the other thing that I watched this week that I want to briefly talk about, and I don't want to go into too much depth because this is a film that I highly suspect is going to be getting a lot of buzz here in a few months come Oscar time. And I would be shocked if there is not a feel and film mini or, uh, episode of some sort on this movie, but it's it's kind of apropos that we're talking about this one because I saw Manchester by the Sea this past week, and you and I were actually messaging back and forth about it, and you had said, you know, let me know what you see, see or what you think when you see it because you haven't gotten a chance to see it yet. Yep. And uh, I remember coming out of it and kind of trying to work through my first messages to you, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if it felt like this to you, but. I felt like there's like a progression of like, as I'm talking about it to you, as I'm trying to voice my feelings on it, you can kind of start to just see the wheels turning of how it's affecting me. And I came out and I was just kind of somber and like, oh, okay, that was, that was a good movie. No, that was was an interesting experience. Didn't really (laughs) blow me away or anything. Like I'm trying to figure out why it's getting such amazing buzz and, you know, it's got great acting in it for sure. I mean, absolutely fantastic performances. Casey Affleck deserves every bit of praise he's been getting. I love him as an actor, and he just knocks it out of the park. Michelle Williams knocks it out of the park. This the new actor that plays uh, the young boy, the nephew of the, the boy that Casey ends up having to take care of is amazing. And But I just, I don't know. I walked out of it kind of going, huh, yeah, okay. And about 20 minutes later, I'm in the middle of my drive home, silent, just thinking about the movie, reflecting a little bit. It's dark. It's raining. And all of a sudden, I just burst into tears. I I couldn't control it. I lost it. And this movie is about how people deal with grief and specifically how people don't deal with grief a lot of times and where that takes them in their life, how that affects every aspect of their decision-making and, and their relationships with people around them. And while I cannot relate directly to 
what happened in this film that brings about the specific grief that these characters have. I could easily trans transpose my own experiences into it. And I think that's why audiences are resonating with this because you and I may not even have the same thing that has caused us the most grief in our life, but we each have something that has deeply hurt us and been very painful. And this movie will make you think about that and will make you think about how you felt trying to get through it and seeing it depicted on the screen. So real and so raw with incredible cinematography and care just uh, was a very impactful experience once you left the theater. So it's a movie that I'm, I'm kind of anxious to get to see again. And uh, I think it could, you know, it, it could, it could rack up some awards. It really could. I mean, it, it's, it's worthy. It's a movie where if it ends up winning some major awards, I'm not going to say, Oh, well that's not deserving. No, I get it now. So I highly recommend Manchester by the sea. Um, you know, it's not one that you have to see on a big screen. So a lot of people may not get to that in the theater because it's not got big CGI and things like that. But, uh, you know, find a way to watch this movie and uh, do so when you're in a place that you can take the time to reflect on it. Yeah, I'm really hoping that I can that I can make it around to see that and Moonlight as well. Um, there's just so many things opening. And then of course, I'm going to see La La Land. So there's so much coming out right now that uh, it's hard to get to the theater to see everything, especially when you want to see Rogue One three or four or five times if you can. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, this time of year, man. Uh, you know, a lot of people said, "Oh, 2016 was kind of a slow year from film through the blockbuster season," and I can see that. You know, there's not a lot of things on that. It, it, basically, my list of top, ten, my top ten list has been filled up in the last month or two with films mm-hmm. that I've seen, and they're just they are coming out every week. Silence is coming. Mm-hmm. Passengers is coming. I mean, we've got so many amazing movies that are hitting uh, right around now that it's it's exciting and it's a little bit of an overload for those of us that want to yeah. get a chance to see them all uh before we move on because let's get to incredibles quickly here or shortly here but i gotta ask you about rogue one are you gonna see it in 3d or in 2d i'm first. going to see it i'm going to see it in 2d first and then i'm hoping i can eventually tack on some 3d imax stuff nice. um but the, the main reason i'm seeing it in 2d the first time um, I think it was just like a schedule thing of like, that's like, that's what works best for me to be able to get, you know, done with everything for the day and go see it as soon as I can. So makes sense. there wasn't any other reason. Good deal. Yeah, me too. I'm doing 2d for the first one as well. Well, we've rambled on enough, so let's jump into what we came here to talk about, which is Brad Bird's animated Pixar film from, I didn't write it down, but the early 2000s. Uh, the Incredibles, right? So yeah. you picked this movie, and so I would like to start this off. Well, I actually want to start this off by saying, if you haven't listened to our show before, thank you for being here. And this is a spoiler show. So we are going to talk about every bit of this movie. We are going to spoil it. We're not going to hold back. So if you haven't seen the film, now is your cue to turn away, go watch it, and then come back and join us afterwards. With that being said, Blaine, since you did recommend this film, what made this the movie you picked? So I love Pixar films. I love Disney films. I love animation um, as a filmmaking style. And 
I, I think it's probably has a lot to do with the things that I've been doing on my own podcast. I've been trying to, to bring in more animated films and call attention to more animated films because it seems like for one reason or another, um, they don't get talked about as much on, on shows. And so I've been trying to do that and I love the Incredibles. It's one of my, it's one of my favorite animated films. It is, it's actually my favorite Pixar film. Um, I don't know if we want to get into the favorite best sort of distinction, but but uh, the Incredibles is the is the Pixar film that I gravitate toward. Like if I'm just going to watch one, it's going to be the Incredibles. Um, I think it's a lot of fun, and I think the Incredibles hits on this really good balance uh, between some of the more emotionally weighty stuff that Pixar is known for doing, and the fun, humorous, light, action-y stuff that they also do really well. I feel like it strikes a really good balance, um, probably the best balance of any of the film of any of the Pixar films. Uh, so it just kind of hits that sweet spot for me. And then also, like, there's tons of uh, there's tons of allusions to like '60s spy films, and a lot of and I'm a big fan of '60s spy films um, and spy films in general. Um, so it's kind of got that feel. That's uh, that's another thing that that really draws me to this to this movie. Um, so it just kind of hits all the right buttons for me. Um, so it was, it was an easy choice. It's just something I've really been wanting to talk about. And if we didn't talk about it now, I was probably going to be talking about it on my podcast this month. So, um, <laughs> well, good. <laughs> Woohoo. We win. Um, no, that's awesome. Uh, so, you know, I will say, I love it. I love hearing you talk about why. And then, you know, we, we focus here on a lot of feelings and emotions being our drivers. So, it's nice to hear you talk about those being the things that are kind of directing your interest in it the most. And I, so I, my history with it is I hadn't seen it in years. I mean, maybe a decade. I honestly don't know. Um, I remember enjoying the heck out of it, but I haven't seen it since I have become a more mature movie goer where Mm. I'm really looking at films more critically and, intentionally seeing what I pull out of them from a spiritual aspect sometimes or an emotional aspect, just different, different things. And so this was my first time watching it with that perspective in mind. And I really loved it so much so that I would agree and say that it has become my favorite Pixar film as well. And I think that you nailed the reason why perfectly. And that is the blend, the blend of, it's family dynamic, it's emotional aspects that Pixar does so well, and it's action, it's fun. And I don't think it's a surprise that Toy Story 3 is my second favorite Pixar film because it has those same mm-hmm. type of things. It has that same blend as this, only maybe just you know slightly lesser for me, but it does the same thing. It has that action and it has that family aspect to it. And so... I've noticed that I really resonate with that as well. And particularly so when we have this superhero family that has a teenage daughter, young teenage daughter, and, you know, a son that's a couple of years younger than the daughter. I mean, this is my family. This is my me and my kids. And so for me, it really connected because of that. I was able to see us in these characters And I got to watch it with my kids this time around. And the whole time, my son is just like, when things are happening with Dash, he's like, ha that's me. That's me. And my daughter's like, oh, yeah, that's me. Socially awkward, (laughs) you know. And um, 
it, it just we could see ourselves in these characters. I'm always joking with them, telling them how I'm a ninja. And, and so we just, it felt like this was us. And I particularly love the references that scattered through this film. Tons and tons and tons of them come to find out shocking. Didn't realize how many there were, but uh, the spy film references and the just all kinds of, I mean, heck it opens with a reference to the consider what's considered the best film of all time, which is citizen Kane, the whole newsreel feed, Mm-hmm. Uh, history that it gives us is a Citizen Kane throwback. And um, yeah, man, it's it's just, it's so good. And I kind of want to start this off by talking about something else that I picked up on uh, as a plus in the movie, which was that it didn't really hold back, that characters died, <laughs> that there were explosions and people were, you know, they were involved in them. This was not as much of a cartoon. And so I had been thinking about that and I looked it up and come to find out, you know, this was Pixar's first PG film. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about Pixar kind of breaking that mold? Yeah. So it's kind of interesting to talk about this being Pixar's first PG film. What other PG films have, uh, have they made? Can you, can you tell me off like is up? PG thirteen. I'm trying to think of of other Pixar films that are I want to say Brave is okay. one. And there's another one. And I cannot recall what it is. There's another maybe it was Inside Out. Might have been Inside Out. Yeah, maybe. But I know it was Brave and there's been three. Brave and something else. Yeah. Um at any rate, I mean Pixar is not known even in their G-rated films. They're not known for holding back as far as mature emotional content goes. I mean, a lot of that may go over the the heads of younger viewers or whatnot, but it's still there. It's still very much a part of their films. They don't they don't really sort of sanitize a lot of those things out like um, well, like Disney has historically, um, and so it's not like it's not like The Incredibles takes everything to this crazy new level. Like Pixar made all of these other films that are just squeaky clean and they're following the, you know, the Disney model. And then all of a sudden there's this really dark um, movie that that's released because really the Incredibles is not darker than, than most of the movies that came before it. It's, it's, it's fun. It's actiony, right? Um, even as it's dealing with some of these themes. But I think one of the things that got um, criticism may not be the right word, but a lot of, one of the things that it seems like a lot of people were a little bit concerned about was the violence that it, that it's the most violent um, Pixar film or certainly was before it was uh, before or up to that point in 2004 when it came out, it was, it was much more violent than anything that had come before it. Um, but I actually appreciate the way this film tackles that sort of real life violence and characters say things like, look, these these guys are bad and they're not going to hold back on you just because you're kids. Um, you should be scared of these bad guys. Uh, this makes me think of um, a really good piece that one of my favorite living authors uh, wrote for a magazine, uh, the Atlantic. The author's name is Indy Wilson. And the article is why I, why I write scary stories for children. He's a, he's a YA novelist. Hmm. Um, and he does write very scary stories that, um, that have very real villains, like usually based on real life villains. And 
he says basically the world is full of of villains like there are villains in the world there are bad people in the world and bad things happen in the world and what we need is not to have stories that teach our kids these things don't exist we don't need squeaky clean we actually need to show them yeah this this world like has some bad stuff in it and there are bad people but this is how you can overcome that evil this is how you can overcome that darkness and push back against it um Again, really great piece. I highly recommend that you read it. There's a there's a great anecdote he tells that I've never forgotten in there. Um, and I say never forgotten. I, he wrote the piece earlier this year, so I could very well forget it at some point. But um, he talks about how one of his little kids was uh, being plagued by nightmares um, for several nights in a row and would come in and wake them up in the middle of the night and be like, I'm having these terrible nightmares. And so finally one night he said, okay, I know what we're going to do. And he, he took his um, son, I believe it was, down in the basement of their house. And he pulled up uh, Doom, uh, the PC game, on his PC, which is, which is a fairly scary game, especially for younger kids. Oh, yeah. And he um, just played through several levels, shooting demons or whatever, whatever you do in Doom, um, with the kid watching. And then said, okay, let's go back to bed and put him back in bed. Um, said, look, you know, you, you could beat the monsters. Um, and so that's something that stuck with me. I think this movie gets it at that sort of spirit and that sort of sentiment really, really well. Um, that uh, even though there are bad things in the world, even though that violence is, is a thing that could happen, like these things can be can be overcome and not not even just overcome through more violence. Right. Um, but overcome through teamwork, because a big part of this movie is the family learning to come together to to defeat what's in front of them. And they're def- they're they're fighting sort of inner conflicts as much as they are external conflicts yeah they really are and i think wow that's a that's a fantastic reference to make um an article definitely worth checking out it sounds like i love the the idea of that because i've done similar things i think with my kids without being intentional about it i've never sat them down and thought to myself oh i want to show you a scary story on purpose um, but I haven't shied away from it either. You know, there, and honestly, these things are, are becoming more and more common. I mean, look at Harry Potter, for example, and what, what takes place in the end of that story. That's mm-hmm. real. That is some real heavy stuff. And these are mm-hmm. quote unquote young adult novels that eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year olds are gobbling up. Um, there's a movie coming out soon based on a, one of my favorite young adult books of recent years called a monster calls that, also is like that it deals with grief in this interesting way of a monster and uh and showing kids like that perspective that they have to you know they can deal with fighting that off um but it doesn't shy away from it and so it's it's awesome that the incredibles did that so long ago before it really started to take hold like i don't i don't think that that's something that we got a lot of back in 2004 Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas right now it may be a little bit more familiar, but then it certainly wasn't. Um, And it was a risk. It was a risk for them to do that. Um, And I applaud them for taking that risk. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned how the family succeeds and that's one of the things that I really just love and resonate with the most about this movie. And that's that they don't succeed because they're superhuman. They succeed because they're humane you know, they succeed because they love and support and protect one another. They don't succeed because they have powers. I mean, 
yes, they have powers, and yes, they play into their success. Obviously, it's a comic book type movie. But without the way that they treat each other as a family, that wouldn't be possible. You know, it's not it's not a battle that can just be won on Braun alone. They had, you know, in, in a lot of ways. And so I love the fact that this society that, you know, once feared and banished them, um, it, it ends up seeing them differently. It didn't, it used to see them as supers being others and different. Like they were different. That's the whole, the whole concept of this movie is, you know, that we have become so used to being saved by these superheroes that we've come. So we've, we've relied on them for so long that the pendulum has swung the other way, which happens in human history all the freaking time. And now we no longer need them. We no longer want them. We, we've we've gotten so comfortable that we're like ah you know we could do this without you instead i'm gonna sue you (laughs) because you stopped me from committing suicide i love that scene i i shake my head and i just i I grimace at the same time i laugh i i I have so many conflicting emotions when i see that moment because i'm just like wow like that's that's today that's people suing because walmart's black coffee burned them when they spilled it on themselves you know that's the way that we live in this world. And so it's awesome that this story does end up bringing that whole thing full circle where they're accepted as members of humanity because of the way that they have succeeded due to treating each other like a family. Um, but anyway, I, yeah, I just, I love that that ties into it. And I think my overall point being is that without the stakes that this movie gives us, that the family dynamic and the situations and the decisions that they have to make don't have the same weight and don't mean as much, frankly. If this mm-hmm. is if this is just a cartoon where you're gonna go splat and get hit with an anvil and you're just gonna be flattened and then get right back up. Mm-hmm. There's not that doesn't give me the same importance to this family situation. When Mr. when Mr. Incredible thinks his family has died, has been killed, that has emotional heft to it. Because they they actually could have been killed in this film. Yeah, and one of the things that really plays into this idea of um, responsibility and super uh, exceptionalism with, with superpowers and all this stuff um, is the film setting. Which, to be perfectly honest, I had never really considered fully until I watched it uh, most recently with my wife. Um. And it was this sort of accidental thing. I think I think she actually made me think of it in the first place. She made some comment about um, it was a scene inside uh, the Parr household, and she said, "Oh, look, their house is really 1960s." Like I never would have noticed that on my own. She's like, "This is very 1960s." I'm like you know what it is. And so then I I started thinking, like you know, I've never really actually paid much attention to the, when this film historically is set, and um. So we started looking, you know, we both started like looking around, looking for clues. And of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, um, how might this setting be different from, uh, the setting of other films Brad Bird has directed, especially I'm thinking of the iron giant, which is one of my favorite films of all time, uh, not just animated films. And so we started looking at this film and, and it turns out we, as best we can tell, 
the film is set t- sometime in the 1960s. So they were active superheroes in the 1950s. Um, so it's set in the 1960s, which means it's a Cold War setting. It's hmm. also set around the same time that that Bradbird's The Iron Giant is set. Um, so this opens up some really interesting dialogue between the two movies. So definitely this movie harkens back to the setting of The Iron Giant. And in both of these films, The Iron Giant and The Incredibles, and I'm not spoiling anything for people who haven't seen The Iron Giant. Good, because I'm one of them. I, yeah, I, I heartily uh, admit that. It's sad, but I'll fix it soon. So no spoilers here. Um, but both of these films are set uh, in... Uh, Iron Giant is set in 57, I believe. So both both the 1960s sort of era um, where there's a lot of Cold War paranoia going on. Now, the idea of there being Cold War paranoia going on is much more uh, on the surface, not in a cheap way at all, but much more on the surface and a part of the important part of the narrative in the Iron Giant than it is here. But I think that Cold War paranoia is a big is actually a significant part of some of the or plays a significant part in developing and giving full body to a lot of the themes here in the Incredibles um, in I, in the Iron Giant it's about a giant robot who comes to earth and befriends a little boy and the military and everyone else besides this boy almost they, they fear the robot they think that he's a weapon right because uh, in in the Cold War everyone was afraid of another country having a weapon that they were launched they would launch it and destroy the world um, and so they were afraid of the other. They were afraid of the outsider. Um, but in the Iron Giant, it's, of course, not the robot who's actually the problem. It's the maniacal government that's out of control and these, these um, and specific actors within the government, a specific government agent. Um, and here, of course, you have a similar sort of setup. You have superheroes who everyone is afraid are the problem. Everybody's afraid that the superheroes are... Uh, causing more harm than they are good. So superheroes are sued. They're forced to go underground. Um, everyone's afraid of the other, the outsider, just like an, an Iron Giant. But of course, it's not the superheroes they need to fear. Um, the person they need to fear, much like in the Iron Giant, is an ordinary guy, right? Syndrome, buddy, right? Just an ordinary guy, no superpowers, really rich. Um, in fact, I think I saw you mention that he's basically like Tony Stark, yeah, um, that's what my daughter said. She said, hey, it's basically like Iron Man. He's got a bunch of money, and he's really smart, and he makes stuff and uses yeah. those inventions, which is exactly right. Yeah. So you've got this you've got this ordinary guy, and he actually launches a rocket. So, like, this very ordinary guy, not the outsider, not the superhero. It's an ordinary guy who actually literally in the, in the Incredibles launches a rocket, which is a big deal in a Cold War setting. Mm-hmm. Like, that is a new – that's a fear of nuclear holocaust actualized in a – kids cold war film um he launches a rocket it and then what, what's inside the rocket it's a giant robot <laughs> right it's like the iron giant so you've got these you've got two narratives from brad bird where you've got these robots the bad robot is actually one created um by humans right to destroy to destroy everybody so he can swoop in and save the day um so he sets he sets a killer lo- robot loose um but the big takeaway to all of this i think is that the movie gets at this idea that it's not it's not superpowers, right, that make you special. Like you were saying, it's it's not the fact that they have superpowers that makes them in that makes them the incredibles. Um it's what they do with their gifts. 
It's how they work together, how they work together for the common good, and how they value human life and how they value other human beings. Um, that's where it comes from, not from um, any sort of special powers that they have. Although, obviously, having those powers helps, um, makes everything a lot easier for makes it makes saving the world a little bit easier for them. Um, but that's not ultimately what makes them the Incredibles, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. I, I think it makes perfect sense, and I love that you brought that up because, I mean, I had I would have never connected the dots, namely because I haven't seen The Iron Giant, so I couldn't connect those two films, but I had not really thought of this movie in terms of a Cold War setting, and, you know, everything you say makes perfect sense. It really does fit that tone of the world at the time very, very well. And, um, you know, Buddy... It's interesting when you bring up Buddy, that makes me, you know, think about his arc and, you know, the way in which he is kind of created to become what he is. He, or Syndrome, I guess, you know, his, like you said, his plan is to do away with the idea that there is anyone that is above anybody else because he has been scorned. He has been told, you're not special enough to be with me by Mr. Incredible. Um, you know, he doesn't want a world of inequality, which, you know, hello, look at the world we live in. This is a world that is feeling very much the same right now. We don't want a world of inequality. We want complete fairness and evenness across the board. That's what the cultural push is for. Um, but he has a great line or it might be Syndrome, Buddy Syndrome, same thing. One of them says, you know, if everyone is super, no one is. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminds me so much of the cultural thing that we do in sports these days where this idea of everyone gets a trophy. You know, Dash is a perfect uh, example of this in his storyline. He can't play sports because he's too fast. He's too special. He can win. Like they can't beat him. Right. So therefore he is forced to suppress his gift, um, or his God given abilities in, in, in this sense, um, in order to keep the status quo because he can't make, because people's feelings will get hurt because they will, they have so much worth in their inability to be equal to dash that, makes them upset it makes them feel unfair and then they they get set on this ultimate path sometimes of what syndrome ends up doing where it's like well i'm gonna go the opposite way i'm gonna take this and and go a completely different direction instead um and i love that you know i love that in the end dash does get to participate in sports i think that's a great way to wrap that up the fact that he does get to he gets to run and and it's also an incredibly hilarious scene. Yeah. <laughs> with <laughs> you know, with his dad speed like up. No, speed up, slow no, down. slow down. And the best part about it is the uh, other person, like he's like a grandpa or something, or dad, in the stands next to him, just looking at, you know, yeah. Mr. Incredible like, Wait, what are you are you doing? Are you really yeah. doing like <laughs> affecting this? So it's um anyway, it, it, my point being is that this idea that this world of inequality is or this world of complete equality is the best for us. Um, to me, 
goes against the idea of everyone being unique in the first place. You know, mm-hmm. you and I may have completely different gifts. We're not superheroes, but we don't have to be. You're a professor in your your daily job. I can't do your daily job. I can't walk into your college or classroom and teach kids and have them draw meaning from that and learn from that in the way that you can do. Um, I would guess, and I could be wrong, that uh, you couldn't walk onto a United States Navy frigate and operate a firefighting ensemble and go put a bilge fire out in the same way that I would be able to do that because I have had training. I, I have a, a talent for that because of what my life has taken or the path my life has taken. So it, I think what I take out of this in a large way is that we have to celebrate and acknowledge each other's strengths. It doesn't mean instead of looking at it as now I'm weaker uh, because that's what Buddy does, and that's what leads him to this place. And of course, you know, part of this is also brought on by Mister Incredible's pride. I, I don't know that he necessarily handles this in the right way in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very rejecting of Buddy without any kind of explanation. And I think I think that conversation piece is important as well. You know, he he just kind of pushes him out very fast. You know. I'll, you know, you, you can't be here. Get away, get away, get away, get away. He doesn't stop to say, hey, buddy, man, let me take a look at those boots that you made. Wow, those are incredible. Have you thought about becoming an inventor? Because you can really impact the world by doing X, Y, Z. He doesn't take the time to have that conversation, and apparently nobody does. And instead, he just pushes the eject button and you know shoots him out of the car. And it, it, it puts us on this path of Mr. Incredible's pride leading to ultimately a fall. Uh, do you see it happening that way with his character arc? Absolutely. I think with many of the characters in the film, again, that's another thing that Pixar is really good about not over sanitizing relationships. They're not afraid to show characters who are, who are flawed, sometimes deeply flawed. Um, I mean, you could see that with um, Carl um, in up. Um, they have a lot of a lot of protagonists, of course, Marlin in uh, Finding Nemo and Finding Dory. Um, they're they're not against creating characters that have fairly significant flaws or problems or obstacles that they that they have to overcome. And um, I think even just showing things like parents fighting is something that probably resonates with a lot of a lot of kids because a lot of kids grew up in, in homes where they hear their, their parents fighting um, a lot. And they, it's, I'm glad that uh, children have stories like this uh, that they can draw on to say, Hey, look, like somebody else gets my, gets my experience, right? There's someone else who understands what I'm going through. I'm glad that they have, I'm glad that we have movies like this who, like this that are that are willing to do those sorts of things especially in america because we've talked a lot about the emotional depth of these films um in america it seems like especially we we this is changing a little bit i think i think in large part thanks to pixar um maybe some studios like uh like uh as well who um have done kubo and the two strings Coraline, uh, so a couple good. of other films so good. yeah that movie was so good um 
but I think I think they may be changing this. But we have largely have this perception in Amer- with American animated films that animation is sort of for kids, right? Not that it can exclusively be enjoyed by kids, but that the, the animation is kind of a, a, a mode of filmmaking that is primarily aimed at kids. And other cultures and other countries don't necessarily have that um, same sort of uh, connotation with animation and and uh, sort of. Uh, ch- a child, a children audience, or child audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, Japanese anime films have been pretty hardcore for quite a while now, um, and some like some like are definitely not kids' films. Like, if you can think, you can think all the way back to Akira in the '80s. Definitely not a not a kids' movie, and that helped sort of change perspectives in America as well. Um, so, I think you see studios like um, like Leica and uh, foremost, I think um, Pixar changing sort of the way we understand what animation can do as a filmmaking medium. And I'm really glad that, that they're there and they continue to push the boundaries here. Oh, me too. And it's funny that, you know, this is a 2004 movie and it's scenery and the animation in this film held up completely for me, mm-hmm. uh, especially um, the scenes when they're coming, when Mr. Incredible is first coming onto the Island with that forest, the lushness of that forest is as good as anything that they're doing now, which is unreal to me that it could still look that good 12 years later when they, when we've seen them pushing the boundaries and in the animation spectrum, um, we know that they do that as well in the storytelling, but I mean, they're doing such a great job all around with all aspects of their films, the technical pieces and the, the emotional pieces. There's something else you said that, I was going to just tack on to quickly. And that is when you're talking about the kids and the bickering of the parents, those are some of my favorite scenes. The way in which Mr. Incredible and his wife bicker just remind me so much of relationships that I've had, you know, where <laughs> at one point he says, um, you're, you're still trying to pick a fight with me and I'm just happy you're alive. They're like, they're running and sprinting <laughs> away from the danger. And, and, you know, there's when she's saving him, she's just ranting the whole time as she's saving him. Yeah, it never stops them from being who they are and putting each other first. There's a great line by the kids where they say, I don't remember which kid it is, but they talk about and agree on that death might be preferable to their parents getting divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, they bicker and they fight just like real siblings do. And yet they also have this bond between them and they care about each other and they, they want to see each other's, you know, abilities manifest and they, they have faith in each other. Dash is, is encouraging Violet. He's always pushing her buttons (laughs) and trying to like rile her up just like our real brother would do. But he also encourages her. He's like, you can do this. You've got to do this. Make the flipping force field. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just, I love it. I love the dialogue. Everything about it is, it just feels so real to me. It feels like this is exactly how people talk, and it doesn't feel fake in any kind of Hollywoodish way. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and and of course it's funny. Uh, there's there's great lines. We were we have a Facebook group, uh, the Feel and Film Facebook group, and we had t- put out a call to ask people what they love about this film. And one of the people was talking about how their she and her husband quote this movie to each other all the time. And of course, one of the lines this was a wife was 
where Frozone's wife tells him, and she says, right. she says, greater good. He says, I'm the greatest good you're ever going to get. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I love that. I, uh, I love that the realness to me of all of these characters. Uh, mm-hmm. Are there, are there any other big things that like connect with you on it? So there's something that I always think about every time I watch this film since a friend pointed out. So this is, this is a friend's, uh, sort of idea. I can't take credit for this, but it always, it always gets to me every time since he's pointed it out. And it's actually a, a fairly minor thing in the first ten minutes of the film or so. Back when they're supers in in the fifties, the original supers, there's a character who is committing suicide. Right, he's throwing himself out of the building mm-hmm. and plummet to his death. Which also, again, fairly dark in in a kid that or in a kid's movie. So he's about to kill himself. And we don't know much about this character. We know that Mr. Incredible saves him, and that's the thing that sort of starts the wheel spinning for, you know, he sued, uh, the the guy sues him for saving him because he didn't want to be saved. Um, but there's something we know about this character. We know his name, and his name is Sansweet. His name is Mr. Sansweet. Hmm. And one of, one of my friends pointed out that um, a lot of times Sans is used as an abbreviation for, for you know, without, not. Um, and so sans sweet could literally be read as without sweetness. In other words, this is a character who has no sweetness in his life. Um, and that's why he wants to throw himself, uh, out of the building. And then, so Mr. Incredible saves him. He gets sued by Mr. Sansweet because Mr. Sansweet didn't want to be saved. There's a line. I'm probably going to butcher it now, but it, it's something like, you didn't you didn't save his life you ruined his death I actually think I got that, that that's what I they that's, that's what the lawyer says yeah um but then we actually see so we see this character without any sweetness in his life and then of course after the supers have to go into hiding everything and we see Bob Parr um we see Bob Parr working he's sort of become Mr. Sansweet in and of himself like there is no sweetness in his life as he's like this huge guy in this tiny space just like slouched over um, he's depressed. He's gained tons and tons of weight, which they make jokes about, uh, visual jokes about in the film and everything. Um, and so that's something that really, really sticks out to me. And it's interesting, though, that early in the film, again, first scene, he's saving, he saves a woman's cat out of the tree. <laughs> in a very um, humorous way. In a very humorous way. Yeah. yeah, he saves the cat and then stops the bad guys. Uh, that woman's name is Mrs. Ogletree, I think. And she is actually the same, if I'm not not mistaken, she's the same woman who comes to him in the insurance office um, when he's put in the insurance office. And he tells her the, what loopholes to go through so that she right. can still, you know, get, get the money that she needs. Um, so, again, we still have this idea here of it's not the superpower. Like, even when he's even when his life is without sweetness and, and things have gone south for him, um, Bob Parr is still able to help people because he cares about other, he fundamentally he cares about other people he sees other people as worth helping worth caring for and so he's able to help this woman and a bunch of other people and that's why his boss doesn't really like him because he gives away too much money yeah um so those are a couple of little things that are just kind of nestled in there that i think sort of make this this picture sort of even more well well-rounded i agree i do i think i think it's got so much depth to it it's it's wonderful that you know you're talking about Bob's arc, his character arc. And in a lot of movies, you know, we, we have multiple lead characters 
um, and they don't all get developed. But in this one, I feel like everybody has an arc. I feel like Bob has his arc of wanting to be a hero again and going through that process. I feel like Helen has her arc of wanting him to be involved with their family and their marriage and, and see that flourish. I feel like, you know, everybody has something violet. She's shy and awkward. She has this crush on a classmate. Um, she can't break out of her shell. She doesn't feel comfortable. And she goes through this change dash. Same thing. He's just a show off and he just wants to, you know, he wants to be able to run and show off his super speed. And he, he gets a way to, learn how to do that in a way that can be conducive to society, not, you know, (laughs) not looking at him negatively, but also where he can take pride in his abilities. And so, and then of course, you know, syndrome has an arc, um, a very interesting one. And I just, I love that all the characters seem to get something in a progressive manner throughout the film. None of them, none of them, I guess none of them end where they start. To, to put it, you know, in a very frank way. Yeah. And so I like that a lot. Um, I love that. I love the cleverness of the way the abilities are used in this movie. I think, you know, it, superhero movies are, you know, at this time we weren't completely showered with three or four of them every year where things get harder and harder to outdo themselves. But some of the things that are done in this one, my goodness, especially Elastigirl, the way that mm-hmm. Elastigirl is used is better than I've ever seen uh, whatever her name is in the Fantastic Four. Now I can't recall it. Um, <laughs> I can't either, yeah. Uh, Carol Richards? Somebody Richards. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's better than I've ever seen her used. The, this, this one time when they, she makes herself a boat and, bet- and she and the kids kind of combine their powers to make this boat with Dash as the motor to get out of the sea. There's that moment. There's her becoming a balloon. And then there's this great moment with the robot where she uses her arms as a slingshot for a manhole cover. And just visually, those things, and then combined with there at the end, the, this this mole guy comes out. You know, mm-hmm. I love that they they have that little moment in there. It's not really teasing a sequel. Yeah. It's not meant to, even though, hey, guess what? Plug. Mm-hmm. There is a sequel coming. Um, but it's just like a haha fun. This is a superhero universe and there are going to continue to be people right. that challenge them. But it reminded me of my childhood because in middle school, I used to do this with friends. We had a friend who could draw and we would create our own characters. And so that's what I thought of when I see this underminer or when I see these abilities being used, I thought about how I used to try and creatively come up with unique superhero ideas. And so I think they did such a great job of taking some, that had been done before and yet making them interesting. Um, one of them, of course, like with dash, he runs fast. How do you, how do you make that any different than anything we've ever seen with the flash? Right. Well, you give us an awesome scene in the forest where it's literally the return of the Jedi speeder bike scene. Like that mm-hmm. is the, that is exact. I was thinking about it the whole time I saw this. There's even a moment where, two of the guards come up on him on their awesomely designed flying disc things, by the way, and they're chasing him and they look to the left and the right with dash in between them, just like the troopers do on the speeder bike scene when they're looking at uh, Luke. And then what sticks out to me about that and the uniqueness of how they treat his ability of super speed is that in the end, 
he gets into a situation where he's got them coming at him from two different directions and he succeeds in getting away, not by being fast and not by running, but by stopping. He stops. He has to come to a dead stop, drop himself into the water. They run into each other and it's so subtle, but mm-hmm. it's brilliant to me yeah. that it twists that on its head where this is his power and he's been using it in this entire big chase scene and he's unable to get away. And it's not until he stops using his power and does something incredibly normal and human and just lays down that he is able to get out of that situation. Yeah. There's another cool uh, bit that I really enjoy and appreciate in that uh, forest chase scene. Violet is um, being hunted down by one of the guards who's actually trying to shoot. I mean, he's trying his best to shoot her. Oh yeah. And, it's pretty easy, I think, to write these sort of guards as like these loony guys who can't, you know, can't get anything right, and they're, you know, just fumbling around, doing the best that they can. Um, but this guy that that Violet encounters is actually a pretty smart guy. He does this thing. It's just a little touch that I really appreciate. Um, she uh, turns invisible and starts running away from him, and she jumps in the water, and he sees where her, you know, uh, where she splashed to go in the water. And he goes up and he grabs a piece of dirt and throws it in the water and lets the the dirt sort of like show her outline so that he can shoot at her. I'm like, that's a really small detail you didn't have to throw in there. Like he could have just started spraying wildly, but like you've actually cared enough and and like spent enough time creating um, some villains who can think through like, what do I do here? Instead of just being like, oh, I'm I'm just going to shoot around. Um, So I I really appreciate that. Yeah, Um, I do too great little detail um yeah, i think there's a lot i think there's a lot of detail and there's a lot of movie references i know i was talking to you about it before the show i i took i took the imdb and i copied it all down in our notes and we're not going to go through it obviously because there's literally three pages of notes people but blaine and i were talking about this and how you know you could play a bingo game or some kind of a, a fun little uh challenge of can you pick out all of the different movie references in this movie? There are dozens upon dozens upon dozens. I mean, we talked about the speeder bike scene. We briefly talked about Citizen Kane. There is one of my favorites, which is uh, when the railing, there, there's that railing that takes them into the island. Uh, and it, as it comes around the corner and goes toward this ju- hor- or gigantic door that opens up, um, it, it's very... Jurassic Park, Island of Nublar, <laughs> harkens back yeah. to that. And there's just reference upon reference upon reference. It makes me want to go watch it all over again and try to find them all and see if I can do it. Yeah. And speaking of feeling film, like one of the things that makes me feel the most in this movie is um, uh, Michael Giacchino's score. This oh, is a yes. fantastic score. Um, and it totally, it, it's what imbues this film with the whole 60s spy vibe, like Man from Uncle, James Bond. Like it's got these big um, brass riffs. It's so much fun just to listen to on its own. Like a, a fantastic, fantastic score. Perfect for this movie. But yeah, it gives it a lot of that 60s spy vibe that makes it that makes it a blast. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm glad you brought that up because I've been trying to pay more attention to score myself uh, in recent watches of movies just in the recent months and um i never used to give it a lot of thought honestly until this year and then the more i have the more i've noticed how much of an impact they can have mm-hmm. um, on a scene whether it be an incredible score or i talked about this in our hell or high water minisode um the absence 
mm-hmm. of score when when a score suddenly stops or is not present and it lets you the you know the the movie lets you take in a scene with just background noise or no noise at all um but the way in which the sound editing can affect a film is really incredible and i can see now i used to joke joke about why the heck is this an award that i have to pick you know on my little challenge i'm filling out every year at the oscars like why do i why do i care about this now i i have a new respect for it and this is very good and nice plug for uh michael i can't say his last name i always oh, want to Giacchino. see i always want to say giacchino so giacchino giacchino yeah giacchino so he's also think, doing yeah. rogue one i believe is yes. that right yeah. yeah yeah i saw something posted about that well Speaking of feeling, um, it, it, we usually wrap our show up by talking about the one scene that we felt the most that was our connecting point that really, if we were going to have to boil it down to one moment to talk about and tell someone about this movie and what it does for us, um, do you have a moment like that that you would consider your connecting point? So we've been talking a lot about um, the realism in this film, how it deals with weighty emotion is- um, emotional issues while still being fun, um, having smart villains. So I think the moment that, that I always connect with is when syndrome kidnaps Jack, Jack, it's a nice little twist there at the end. Look like, frankly, if DreamWorks had made this film and if Disney had made this film 30, 40 years ago, the movie would have ended with them defeating the Omni droid there. Syndrome would have been hauled off in the police cruiser or whatever, and that would be the end of it. Would kind of end on a high with a big battle like that. So this twist where you think, okay, it's kind of over, they defeated everyone, and then Syndrome goes and he actually kidnaps their youngest child. Um, that's that's a hard moment to watch for me, and I don't ha- I don't have children, so I'm sure for someone with children that that just absolutely resonates. I mean, it gets my blood boiling to think about this guy going in stealing the kid. Um, but I always appreciate that that extra little fight that extra little twist that's in there and what it does is we've talked about these this family overcoming their individual and sort of collective obstacles to work together well they do that when they're fighting the big omni droid they all work together um and they do that once and this final battle uh with syndrome where he's holding jack jack gives them all a chance to work together once again to show and remind us that, hey, they really do understand that this is about teamwork. This is about coming together and caring for one another. And so every single character, I believe, in that scene plays a part in in the rescue. They all have something they have to do. I know Violet, like, she sets the force field that, like, keeps them from getting destroyed in the, the fiery uh, explosion at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, Elastigirl, like, uh, does the, the parachute thing. Or is that earlier? Um, nope, she does that. A, That's yeah. what she does. Um Look at but mommy, yeah, each, look at mommy, she says. Yeah. So each character sort of has, and then, of course, Jack-Jack turns, and that's where we figure out, like, he does have a special ability. Oh, um, yeah, shape-shifting for the win. Yeah. And so uh, every character gets to use their ability, but to not for their own sort of individualistic purposes, but to come together um, as one, bringing them all together. I think that's a great, such a strong, strong ending. And... Um, that's that's usually the point that that gets to me emotionally the most every single time I watch this movie. That's really cool. I think that's I, I always think it's fun to hear this part about what it is because I never know what Patrick's going to pick. I had no idea what you were going to pick, and it's always or it's often very different. And it's not the moments that we necessarily would have suspected 
that it was mm-hmm. if we go into this just on the surface. Oh, yeah, you know, I love this speech or whatever. But when you really think about it, you really are paying attention to what that is as you're watching the film and you find out that it's something completely different that's not the biggest dramatic moment in the movie, but it's something that you pick out that's very special to you. And so that's why we do this and, and we encourage listeners to do the same thing You know, when they're watching a film is to look for that moment and just you know, pick it out, think about it and realize it when, when it happens. And so it's awesome that you would find that one. And I love that scene too. And I love the fact that it goes back to that PG conversation. We opened the, the Incredibles talk with, and it's willingness to be violent in ways. And that, you know, syndrome dies (laughs) syndrome Mm -hmm. gets sucked into the engine and dies. He doesn't come back. He is gone. Doesn't no go, kicks. He goes to no kicks. <laughs> That's Brad Bird, by the way, Edna, which is yes, hilarious. Yes, it is. It's um, great. But yeah, it's just, it's so different than what you even see in a Marvel movie. In a Marvel movie, sometimes, you know, you got, you don't end up with these guys dying. It's just like, oh, you got really, really, really bad beat up in that engine, but he's okay. No, I'm pretty sure Syndrome's gone. So mm-hmm. I think that that's an awesome choice. For me, mine as well is one that, I don't know that a lot of people would pick and it is Mr. Incredible's montage after his first mission for syndrome. And he has accepted this offer and gone to the Island and and beaten the Omni droid completely to death, (laughs) even though he wasn't supposed to destroy it, which Mm -hmm. is hilarious. My daughter looked at me and she's like, really? He's Mr. Incredible. You're going to ask him not (laughs) to destroy it. And I'm like, I know. Right. But he now comes home. And it's this moment that I felt so connected to and I resonated with and I thought of myself because he all of a sudden, he starts interacting with his family better. He interacts with his wife better. He starts spending quality time playing with the kids. We see him just, you know, erupting in joy, kissing her for no reason. All of these things that exhibit a healthy relationship and a healthy parenting relationship, healthy marriage that we did not see and they intentionally show us not happening when he's stuck in this rut of being an insurance salesman. We see him getting in shape physically and he just, he becomes the happy guy and he becomes the best Mr. Incredible Bob Parr he can be. He's Mm -hmm. at his best. And all of this comes because he's able to do what he loves. And frankly, he's able to embrace his passion because Patrick and I've talked about this before in episodes like chariots of fire and the idea that is put forth in that, that movie is that, you know, I run because God has made me able to run. And I kind of see that as the same thing here. Mr. Incredible has been, he has been given this gift. He's created with the ability to do these things and for him not to do them does not allow him to be who he's supposed to be. So he can't be at his best. He can't be the husband and the father that he needs to be, the friend. And so this montage just makes me so happy <laughs> because mm-hmm. you know, even though it's sad as well and kind of conflicting because he's lying about how he mm-hmm. got to this point, it shows us what happens when it occurs and it, it makes him care about everything more. Um, and it becomes the same message that we see later in the film, you know, specifically with Violet and her going through this arc of, of learning that her individual giftedness and uniqueness should not be stifled. You know, she doesn't have to hide it under 
a bushel. She needs to let her light shine, I guess. Yeah. Um, and just embracing your passion. And that's, that's what podcasting is for me. And, you know, I, I resonate with that because I know that it makes me a better person. I'm, I'm a happier person. I'm, I'm more engaged in every aspect of my life because I've found something that gives me that creative outlet that my person and my soul kind of requires. And so, so that's what really gets me the most out of this whole movie. Mm-hmm. I was so close to, to picking that. It's always, it's always oh. right there at the top for me. And I'm a, I'm a movie crier. I don't know. Oh, me too. I'm a huge crier. What I'm learning about myself is I don't cry. I very rarely cry in movies or in life when I'm really sad. I actually cry when I'm happy, which is is kind of this very weird thing because then usually people are like, everyone's happy and like I might start crying at something like, oh, is everything okay? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, sure, it's okay. But like there's a little moment. I love that little montage you pointed out. And there's a moment that I... I almost start to choke up at every time. It, it's so quick. Usually don't get to full-fledged tears. Um, but, like, he he pinches Mrs. Incredible's butt as he walks down the hall. Yes. And then, like, he walks on by, and she, like, stretches to pinch his. And, like, just that sweet interaction. Um, like, usually, like, I almost get on the verge of tears when, when that happens. So, so yeah, good. I was so close to, to bringing this well, up. Well, good. I'm, it's nice to feel or, or know that I'm not alone in that feeling then. Um, and that other people pick up on that, too. So... That's great. Well, dude, awesome movie. Um, awesome having a conversation about it and being able to talk through it. I, I love the stuff that you brought to the table. Um, I, you know, it's kind of fun not knowing what you were going to say. Sometimes I, I do know ahead of time uh, and it's nice to be shocked <laughs> and have <laughs> you say some things that I'm just like, wow, I'm like a listener. You know, I'm like really engaged going, wow, Blaine's got these great ideas. So if you want more of Blaine's great ideas, where can people find your stuff and your work uh, online and podcasting wise all over the place? How can they talk to you? How can they hear your, hear you and uh, connect with you out there? Sure. So I write reviews and I have a podcast that I do at realworldtheology.com. Um, so you can find me at realworldtheology.com writing reviews and then you can find Real World Theology's podcast um, through iTunes or anywhere else you, you you know you get podcasts. There's a main real world theology podcast that you subscribe to. I actually do a once a month podcast that's on that same feed. Um, so if you, it's all great. You should listen to all of it. If for some weird reason, I re- genuinely don't know why anybody would want to do this. If you just wanted to listen to mine, you scroll through and look for the ones that said Real World Rewind, um, and those those are the ones that I do. But listen to it all. Um, I also write at ChristandPopCulture.com, so you can check out some of the written work that I do there, uh, talking not just about movies but about comic books and anything else that I that I find interesting. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. Um, I'm sure all those will be linked in the show notes. Um, so that's how you can find me in all those ways. Yes, they will. Do you want to mention what you've got coming down the, the pipe, or is that a secret? That is... What I've got coming down the pipe for this month is uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh. I'm excited to do that. Um, January. Best still Wes working. Anderson film. And yeah, I said that. So yeah. come at me. <laughs> so yeah, we got Fantastic Mr. Fox coming up. And then I'm still waiting on my host um, to let me know what we're going to do in January. So awesome. TBD. Good stuff, man. And you'll be back with us uh, next week for La La Land, too. Yes, I'm so excited. Me, too. Well, if you want to uh, connect more with me, uh, or the Feelin' Film show in general. You can find the Feelin' Film show at Feelin' Film Twitter, Facebook, 
there's a link to the Facebook page or the, there's a link to the Facebook group on the Facebook page as well as on our website, feelinfilm.com. That's where most of the discussion takes place between not just myself, Patrick, and a lot of our co-hosts, but all of you listeners as well. It's a good place to come and, and get your thoughts out and uh, just have a bunch of fun discussions related to movies and TV and whatever other entertainment stuff crosses your mind. Next month, not next month. Now you got me saying next month. Next week, uh, we will be doing a Moonlight mini-sode. So as I mentioned, you'll, you'll get that probably midweek around Thursday. Uh, after this episode is dropped on its normal Monday. And then after that, it's all about Rogue One with Patrick Backram Kenya. So excited to talk about that one. I am still trailer free. I'm so proud. It has been an absolutely incredible diff. Incredible. There it is. One last time. Incredibly hard thing to not watch a trailer for this movie. There have been so many. I don't know how you've done it. Yeah. Well, there have been so many times in the theater where it plays. And I mean, I look like a fool because I'm, you know, I'm ducking my head. I'm trying to cover my ears. And I mean, I've heard some parts of the trailer, but not enough to really impact me. But I have not watched one. And so I'm so excited because I don't know anything other than just the general plot synopsis. And that's how I wanted to keep it for this film. So hopefully it lives up to mine and I guess the rest of the world's expectations. But, uh, yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Uh, check out the, the library of back episodes. It's getting to be pretty big. We, we'd love to have you uh, subscribe and, and be here for the long haul. And until next time, as always, stay positive and keep feeling film.